When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus, where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Nate and Justin talk about the fifth and sixth episodes of the funk season of Tales from the Tour Bus, featuring James Brown, the one-man Mount Rushmore of funk. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Justin Bankson for one of our specials, We Dig Tales from the Tour Bus episodes. Today we're talking about Season 2, Episodes 5 and 6, James Brown, the big kahuna, the godfather of soul. Justin, welcome. Thank you, Mr. Dynamite, James freaking brown indeed indeed so this is an epic two-parter the heart of the second season of tales from the tour bus as mike judge said uh you know if james brown wasn't there wait he says if we can identify a specific moment when funk was invented we know james brown was there that's what he said so yes this is this is big doings um it's a pretty interesting episode structurally they use his former tour manager alan leeds as sort of the intro they tell the story of alan leeds interviewing james brown as a dj teenage white guy dj invited to james brown's hotel suite to do an interview and then they they do a backwards uh you know from there james brown tells him about his childhood and so they they sort of frame the episode that way otherwise it's it's not entirely straight chronological, but they basically s- stick more or less chronological. They don't spend too much time on his childhood, but a little bit. Um, any general thoughts about the episode before we dive into the details? Yeah, I mean, it's there's so much, obviously. I mean, he gets started early on in his life, and then he lives to be 73 years old, and we're trying to fit all of that into 
you know, a couple of 30 minute episodes. So it, it kind of goes pretty fast and there's a lot going on and there's a lot of James Brown, which is great. And I, you know, it's just really entertaining and it's really fun to get all these little glimpses from all these different angles. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing to keep in mind is they basically start, I mean, they basically, and appropriately, since this is a funk season, they basically cover his funk years from 67 and up. They, they cover his childhood a little bit and just a tiny bit of his, what you would, might call his soul years from 55 up to 67. And the thing to keep in mind with James Brown is he's not just, you know, the king of funk. He's also the godfather of soul and his career before 19 if he had died in 1967 he still would have been first ballot hall of famer so this this is an artist of immense importance and they're only covering uh you know the second half of his career in toto in the two episodes so they're not even not even i mean they don't even touch they barely touch on the live at apollo album which is one of the you know totally apocal albums of the soul era so you know keep that in mind they do get in, talk about his his extremely rough childhood. They basically boil it down to two points. His, his brutal father, they tell the story of his father throwing his mother out the window. Uh, and, and they talk about James Brown's beginnings as a street corner dancer, uh, dancing for soldiers who were based in Augusta, Georgia during World War II. And he was not quite a tot, but not much bigger than that, eight, nine, ten years old, uh, dancing on the street, and they emphasize that. I mean, basically, they they portray James Brown as fundamentally a dancer, which I think is fair. It is, and it sort of it gives you sort of a glimpse into the sort of physicality of the music that you can feel when you listen to it. But it's it's kind of an important point that this music and the the whole feel of it and the whole idea of it comes from James Brown's whole body. Yeah, absolutely. And and his ultimate achievement as a musician was to turn the entire band into a rhythm section that keyed off of the movements of his body. And so he is pretty singular in American music in his ability to bend bands to his will. I mean, you know, we've had great band leaders throughout American music Duke Ellington, Count Basie, you know, Ray Charles, Captain Beefheart. There's been plenty of, of band leaders who could, you know, bend b- musicians to their will, but I don't think anybody's ever done it quite to the extent James Brown did, especially being as innovative as he was, and not innovative in a Captain Beefheart way that not many people followed that road, but innovative in that he blazed a path that basically all of popular music has been running down ever since uh, his pioneering funk albums of the late 60s and early 70s so you know they 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 have the framing device with alan leeds get his childhood you know the brutal father uh extreme deprivation and they they go easy on that they they really do limit how much they talk about exactly how poor he was as a child they do talk about uh, his tenure in juvenile detention, and that's how he met Bobby Bird, who was, you know, his right-hand man throughout his career, the leader of the Famous Flames. And they do have uh, Bobby Bird's Mrs. as one of the interviewees. So that's that's Vicki Anderson, who was a background singer for James Brown as well. And, you know, I think, what, what are your thoughts on the overall 
guests or the interviewees that they, they talked through on this. And I'll list them out in a minute. Excuse me. I did enjoy uh, Vicki Anderson a lot. I thought it was great to have Bobby Bird represented in that way because I think he's so important to the story. And so to have sort of her there to, to sort of represent him in the story, I think was really important. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of, she's one of the few people that can call bullshit on James Brown with love. Exactly. Um, and, exactly. you know, as, as the, the wife of his right hand man and, and, you know, nobody's a hero to their valet. And I mean, you know, anybody that's as close as James Brown and Bobby Bird were, you know, any kind of heroism is, is going to be thrown out the window. And she's definitely got a perspective. I mean, some of her quotes, you know, I mean, James wasn't capable of love and James was impossible. And, and, you know, it echoes things that like Alan Leeds said that, you know, he was a madman. He had the most violent mood swings of anybody I've ever met. And, and it really does, paint a very vivid picture of james brown as this very lonely force of nature who is battling the whole world uh mano a mano i mean he's he's surrounded himself with a band and and tons of women but fundamentally the dude is alone against the world and it's a lot like the rick james two-parter in that the first episode is mostly positive and the second episode it's not as relentlessly negative as the Rick James uh, second episode was, but it's still negative. And the big difference is young James Brown has the straight edge. He's clean and sober and a workaholic. And older James Brown has taken up angel dust, which it seems like everybody in this, Alan Leeds was the main guy talking about it, but it seems like everybody involved was pretty baffled about his uh, selection of a drug of choice at age 55. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as he said, if I were going to suggest to anyone that they get involved in drugs, especially at a later age, like PCP would be near the bottom of the list. Yeah, but I, I have a theory about this. I don't know if you followed it, but they've recently approved ketamine, which is a close cousin of PCP. They're both animal tranquilizers as a treatment for depression. And apparently... Um, you know, they've got tons of restrictions on it. You have to do it in the, in the psychiatrist's office. You, you can't be given the medication and, t- and take it away. It's extremely expensive, which is funny since it's a dirt cheap street drug. But apparently it is one of the most effective treatments for depression there is. And as they said in the show, the depressing, the, the period in which he's doing PCP, kicks off with the death of his oldest son, Teddy. So I don't think you can underestimate um, the pain that James Brown was going through. Uh, You know, losing a child is supposed to be the worst emotional pain you can go through. And, and, you know, I hope none of us ever experienced that, but James Brown definitely did. And, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's an episode two. Episode one, you know, we've got his, his backstory, childhood story. And then, and then it jumps into, his rivalry with Joe Tex and it's, it's interesting selection. I mean, out of all the tales you could tell about James Brown that he, they, they focus in on this, this, uh, he steals Joe Tex's woman and Joe Tex cuts a song about it. And Joe Tex, you know, accuses him of stealing his, his mic bouncy move. And 
one thing leads to another, and, and next thing you know, James Brown is shooting up the club 15. I mean, literally walking in with a bunch of goons and firing shotguns everywhere, and then leaving the scene and leaving guys behind to to pass out cash uh, for the hogs that were wounded in the back. So that's pretty epic shit. Indeed, and I think that story, one of the reasons it's included is because it's so clearly like a uh, a blueprint for like Tupac and Biggie and, and the whole sort of like, you know, rap battle songs and, and answer songs and, and that led to actual violence and, and all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that, that it's not a singular experience in American musical history. And, and I mean, you know, even Otis Redding, who's got a totally uh, positive reputation you know, martyred young in a plane crash, but even Otis Redding got involved in a, in a gunfight in Augusta as a young person, but a young man who was already a successful band leader. So, you know, uh, it was just part of the scene and, you know, it's the South, it's dudes and there's gunplay. It's, it's just, you know, and, and like, I guess it was last episode that Mike judge apologized for not having as much gunplay this season, but James Brown, uh, elevated that. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, and then they and then they bring in the JBs and then they tell the story that that they already told in the Bootsy Collins episode about you know uh, James Brown replacing Fred Wesley and the gang with the JBs on very short notice, but then they dive in more into the the whole way that James Brown would travel on a private plane while the band rode in a bus, but he liked to drag the drummer along with him on his plane, and nobody wanted to ride the plane with James. Yeah, that's that says it all right there. <laughs> yeah and and you know describe it as like it's like your uncle or something he's cool and all but you don't want to hang with him he's not he's not you're hanging with and then they talk about his womanizing and they talk about how you know his wife was beautiful most of his girlfriends were beautiful but then he they'd see him with these women and they're like what is he doing with her and then the next day he'd be talking about that gumbo and so you know each of these women had a different um some of them were great cooks apparently as well as others other other gifts and then oh james yeah oh james and uh and then they talk about how you know at the peak of his powers he had his own studio his own management company he owned his own record label had his own pressing plant his own radio station so he was a completely vertically integrated thing he he recorded the song he booked his own shows recorded his own songs in his own studio pressed them up in his record plant uh, distributed them and to his own radio station so you know, incredible accomplishments, and they don't get too heavy into it, but they do allude to the fact that, you know, he was on Richard Nixon's enemies list, which is pretty aggravating. They don't get into it, but, you know, James Brown took a lot of heat for supporting Richard Nixon, not during the campaigns, but after Nixon was elected. I think he did support him in 72, but, you know, I mean, it's like James Brown does everything he can to back this administration and they still um you know mark him on their crazy paranoid enemies list and and jagger hoover uh you know and the irs the fbi and the irs allegedly basically squeezed him out of his radio station business and like you know spiro agnew the nixon's vice president said after james basically single-handedly stopped the riots in boston after mlk was killed you know any man who can stop a riot can also start a riot so they were just frankly afraid of black power yeah and that that whole part of it is really intense because so you got this guy that has built up this against all odds has created this empire and 
you know, the establishment just can't stand to see him have it. And they fear the power that, that he has built for himself. And they, so they take it away from him. And it's crazy because it's the kind of, the kind of story that like an aging rock star and a bunch of drugs will make up. But in this case, it seems true that they were out to get him. Yeah. I mean, and some of it was self-inflicted because, uh, and they don't talk about this so much, but you know, in his biography, they talked to his biographer, R.J. Smith, but you know, he was in a cash business and he habitually hoarded cash. And so it was very hard for his accountants to, account for all the money that that was passing through much less paid to taxes on time, et cetera, et cetera. And so he like Willie Nelson and so many other American performers ended up in tax trouble. And in James Brown's case, it, it really damaged his, his business empire. But there's also every reason to believe that he was not the world's best businessman, that he had lots of opportunities and he invested fairly well, but he couldn't actually run a successful business. He wasn't like, Buck Owens or Dave Clark, the Dave Clark Five, who were, you know, musicians and business stars. James Brown's gifts were pretty much strictly on the musical front. So that's the first episode. Then the second episode, they hit with the 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 drug stuff at the beginning. They they open up with a sequence where uh, James Brown is uh, doing an interview with a, a black writer and a, and a white Hollywood mogul walks in trying to pitch James on a movie deal. And James totally puts the guy in his place and says, you know, if you're going to make a movie about, there's no way you can make a movie about me. That's as good as me. And, you know, I would have to direct it. I would have to star in it. And, you know, James Brown never did. Uh, there never was a James Brown movie while he was alive. There's been a couple documentaries since then. Uh, but but nothing, you know, while he was alive. And they do talk about, you know, they acknowledge that he was on this just untouchable streak from 67 to 72, basically, uh, even before he brought the JBs in. But, you know, he, he formalized his funk in the mid to late 60s, perfects it, and then just runs with it for several years. And then, um, you know, they kind of tell some of the stories, like they talk about him, uh, freaking out because the Dells are opening up for him and he thinks the Dells are, are staying on the stage too long and he's telling his stage manager, you know, get him off the stage, get him off the stage. And it's it's probably the funniest part of the episode, but I'll save that for the question segment. And then they talk about the JBs in Africa and I found that part really fascinating. Like they talk about, you know, James is hanging out with the dictator of Gabon and and they're telling stories about how brutal the the military police are. And, you know, there's a blind man who wants to get in to see James and James lets him in. And then as soon as uh, the guy leaves the room, the soldiers just start kicking the guy's ass down the stairs. And uh, it's, it's pretty brutal, but they, I think the point they were trying to make is that James was of an equal status to these African dictators, that he was a king. Yeah. And so, you know, and and they also give Bootsy's perspective of seeing Africa and having that experience of seeing James Brown interacting with these, you know, African rulers. And uh, basically, you know, Bootsy's like, yeah, I was just a young dumbass kid. I wasn't, I wasn't, I recognize now that this was deep and there was much deepness going on. But at the time I was busy getting high and did not uh, really grasp the, the thing. And then, and then they get into the, you know, the tragic arc and, and, talk about the death of his son, Teddy. 
And, and, you know, this is one thing I caught, but they actually used a photo of Little Willie John instead of Teddy at one point. When when they're talking about Teddy, there's another photo that they use that is Teddy. And I thought that was funny because they don't talk about Little Willie John in this episode, but Little Willie was a peer of James Brown, a contemporary of, you know, James and Ray Charles and Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson. Little Willie John was one of those guys that came out of the gospel church and was on the R&B circuit. He was actually ahead of James Brown in that he had hit records when he was 15, uh, at 16 in the, in the mid fifties. But, and, and then, you know, got inherited little Richard's band, the upsetters. And for a while had, you know, the best stage show on earth. And even James Brown had to, had, had to respect little Willie John on stage, but little Willie burned out and ended up dying in prison in 68. And James Brown did a whole album dedicated to the memory of little Willie John. So I just thought it was interesting that they uh, had that photo slipped in there of, of little Willie John and listeners of the show. Now I've, I've done a whole episode on little Willie John. So kind of a fascination of mine, but, but you know, from there it's, it's all, it's all downhill. I mean, there's the mustache era, the attempt to keep up with disco, you know, t- multiple arrests three times in six months in 1988. The, the, the whole police chase that starts with a paranoid fear that somebody at an insurance convention used the bathroom in his office and, and you know, parlays that into a two-year prison term. So it's, it's, it's pretty brutal. But at the end... Uh, you know, they they uh, they let it, Alan Leeds once again talk and and talks about the last time he saw James Brown and I thought that was pretty touching because he got to spend an hour with him backstage at a big gala show and 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 he said it was like two old men sitting on a park bench just kicking it you know and and uh, Mike Judson sums up with no film TV show or cartoon could ever do justice to the King so I think that's an admission that this topic is just too big even for the best cartoon documentary music series ever to to do justice yeah i mean it it absolutely succeeds in being incredibly entertaining and giving you a glimpse into what james brown was about but you know as you said it it can't be everything and, and mike judge acknowledges that yeah i mean i think you could easily do a whole TV miniseries on James Brown and, and, and to do it justice, you know, I think a, a two, three, four hour movie is still going to be scratching the surface and two half hour shows. is just, just a capsule. So, uh, we talked about, let's talk about the various interviewees they talked to. So we, we talked about Alan Leeds, who was his tour manager. Then they had uh, Dr. Scott Brown, scholar of the funk that we saw, I believe in the Bootsy episode, uh, RJ mm-hmm. Smith, uh, James Brown's biographer, Nelson George, who's kind of the producer of this season, he's he's all over it. Vicki Anderson, the Bobby Bird's wife that we talked about. And then you've got Frankie Cashwadi and Bootsy Collins, the drummer and bassist from the JBs. Then in the second episode, you've got another writer, Vernon Gibbs. Alan Leeds comes back. Bootsy, Vicki Anderson come back. And then you get uh, Tony Cook and Christian McBride. Tony Cook comes back, who's a comes along, who's a drummer from the later period so he can talk about you know james brown trying to make him play the disco beat and stuff and then you've got christian mcbride who's a huge fan and a jazz bassist who has a pretty interesting misadventure with james and and it's an interesting choice i mean i I think they structured these episodes around you know who they can get to tell these stories and so christian Mm mcbride's somebody who dealt with james brown 
in the nineties in the, in the late period. And so he's a accomplished, you know, multi Grammy award winning jazz bassist. And he really wanted to do some music with James Brown and talked about how he navigated that all the way up to getting invited to James Brown's Christmas party in 1996. And then, uh, you know, James Brown praises him in front of everybody. And then when they get alone at the at, for the photo op by the Christmas tree, he's accusing uh, the dude of trying to steal his woman, which is just classic if you've ever dealt with anybody who's powerful and famous. It's just the epic kind of paranoia that those people get sucked <laughs> up in. And so uh, any comments on the interviewees? Well, again, I mean, Bootsy is kind of, you know, I could just watch animated Bootsy Collins all day. You know, you could read yeah. the phone book. No doubt. He's definitely the MVP of this season, I think. For sure. You know, it's dominating four, four different episodes. And um, yeah, and then I think Alan Leeds probably is, is Alan Leeds and Vicki Anderson are the ones that seem like were the emotionally the closest to James. Um, and and that I think is important to humanize him a little bit because he's such a force and he's not quite Jerry Lee Lewis caliber negative energy, but frequently, you know, there's there's a lot of negative shit that they did not cover in these episodes, like his relationship with Tammy Terrell, the Motown singer who died young, you know, there's allegations of really vicious beatings uh that James inflicted on her. You know, and this is a woman who died of a brain tumor at a very young age. So there's, you know, worries that that he helped precipitate that. You know, so there's definitely some negativity that they didn't get into, but they did, you know, get into the whole shotgunning and and they conveyed that that James Brown was not a man to be trifled with, and that he was a very difficult personality at the least. Yeah, and I agree that having Alan and Vicky, who both they're obviously, you know, acutely aware of James's, you know, of the challenge of being around James Brown, but they both clearly love the guy. Uh, and it's important, I think, to have those those people in there to sort of, to like you said, to sort of tie you into the humanity of, of, of what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, pretty essential. And so let's, let's talk about the, the songs featured in the episode. We've got... Um, I got the feeling and the first opens it up. Uh, and these James Brown songs are really hard to identify because they're frequently vamps or jams. And then almost all of his songs have interchangeable lyrics. So if I get, if I get one of these wrong, feel free to tweet at me or let me know on Facebook and, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to set the record straight, but to the best of my estimation, we got, I got the feeling then there's an unidentified vamp. Um, just so you can see him dancing. Then they've got a Joe Tex song, which is You Keeper, which I guess it's just, it's pretty classic that, you know, they're telling the story of James Brown stealing the guy's girlfriend and Joe writes a whole song about it and, and calls James out by name. So, but it's pretty unusual in this series to have another artist's song featured, especially somebody with the catalog as rich as James. But then you've got uh, Sex Machine with the JBs. You've got It's a Man's World live in Boston at that MLK, uh, the concert a couple days after MLK died, and then Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, which ends the episode. And and I think that's a pretty good choice to end the first episode with because 
Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, pretty much killed James Brown as a singles artist on the American pop charts. Like he had established, it took him a while to get over with white America, but by the late 60s, he completely had. And supposedly his shows, you know, were getting close to 50 50 white and black. And he was on the pop charts regularly from like 65 to 68, 69. But once he does Say It Loud, and that one song hits, but basically, it's bye-bye pop charts after that. Like once he'd announced, you know, uh, black pride, he lost, lost his access to the white audience. And I, I'm sure there was some backlash amongst on the part of the white audience as well, but definitely radio drove that. And then in the second episode, you've got what I think is mother popcorn, uh, and then man's world, but this time live with the JBs. And then the unfortunate original disco man, which <laughs> is, <laughs> Yeah, you know, you have to hear it to believe it. And then, and then, living in America, which was his late '80s comeback hit. Um, thoughts on the music in this episode? These episodes. Well, that the the little the lineup of songs in the first episode is just it's all hit and no quit. You know, it's just like the the core sort of vibe is all there, and it's just completely killer. Uh, and it's just moving you through the episode and giving you these glimpses of just the raw power of, of James Brown. And I think the, the, the live footage, which that, which they're, you know, really smart at weaving into all these episodes, <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. But in the James Brown episode, the live episode, the live footage is just at its peak because James Brown, like can electrify a camera and some people can get across on a live audience and can't necessarily get across on a TV camera, but James Brown can just leaps off your screen. And so the, the way that they put these songs in that episode with the footage of James dancing, it was just electrifying. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, if you're making a show about James Brown, give him as much camera time dancing as you possibly can. And, and, you know, so many great bands and and i think you know they 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 skipped over his early period his soul period which is fine they're focusing on the funk and like you say the first episode it's it's all killer no filler and the second episode i think they did a pretty good job you know it start it's the first half of it is is solid funk again and then you just have to show the disco man i think i think you have to show how he struggled to keep up uh and and what you know just how brutal the disco era was for james brown and and you know for a guy who was at or near the top of the r&b world from the late 50s all through to the mid 70s you know even james brown is going to have a fall from grace and <laughs> original disco man certainly uh is that and then you know living in america is fine you know for what it is and i think i think it was good to include and it's the perfect soundtrack for the sad later years with all the the legal troubles and and so forth um what was your favorite part of the two episodes i my favorite part is kind of a little thing but honestly my the, the part that tickled me the most is when Bootsy Collins is clowning on James Brown's shoes. It's just, <laughs> I, I just fall out every time I watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Bootsy and uh, James, they really capture that relationship of, of mentor and protege and the, 
Mentor trying to be a control freak and the protege just not having it. I mean, the the generation gap was immense between those guys. And they're not, you know, I mean, I think they were 15 years apart in age or something like that. So, you know, it wasn't like they were 40 years apart in age, but definitely coming from different worlds and different eras. I think, I think my favorite part of the of the two episodes, it's hard to pick because there's there's a lot of great stuff in here. I think it would have to be when the drummer, when Cash Waddy's talking about, or maybe it's Tony Cook, when one of the drummers is talking about being on the plane with James and how James turns on a dime from telling him all the stuff he doesn't want to hear about women to then, you know, going on a whole riff about I'd have to kill myself if something, something happened. And it just really, <laughs> to me, vividly captures that experience of having to spend time with somebody that is that much more powerful than you and can totally set the terms of the conversation and yet can't really connect and 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 uh, you know that, that that was my favorite part um that's just a heavy heavy thing to think about being james brown and being that alienated for everybody i mean you know who do you talk to if you're james brown and you already see you know with his for one thing, he barely had peers, you know, I mean, even, even yeah. something like Ray Charles ultimately uh, couldn't keep up, you know, I mean, uh, James Brown innovated that second phase of his career in the funk invention of funk just took him to a whole nother level and, and to where his peers are people like Muhammad Ali, you know, and, and, and that's, that's pretty rarefied air and, and really lonely and hard. Um, what was your favorite song? Well, and I'm afraid that we're, I mean, to me, it's obviously get up sex machine. Uh, it's just killer. And yeah, I, I also love, I mean, the, the guitar line in that song played by catfish is just like, it's the blueprint of everything about what fuck music is supposed to sound like. Yeah. And hip hop. I mean, it's, it's such, yeah. such an apocal break. Um, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to pick a favorite. I might, I might have to go with the two versions of "It's a Man's World," just just because. I guess that is one, the one soul song that they that they put in there, and just the raw emotion that he conveys uh, in that song, and the two different versions of it. I went back, you know, when I was prepping for this and watching the two episodes over and over, and I watched the two versions back to back and and it's just an incredible song and and he really he really brings it on that one and, and you know and you already grabbed sex machines so <laughs> i gotta fix something different <laughs> so what was the funniest part to you you know that that's tricky i mean i think probably the funniest is also the my favorite is is bootsy clown and his shoes yeah uh and just bootsy in general is just a scream all the way through yeah for sure and and the, and the thing is like for this to me is a lot like the Waylon Jennings two-parter in the first season where it's just not as funny as some of the other episodes and and that's cool Agreed. because James Brown is you know just like Waylon Jennings was a king James Brown was a king and there's just not as much funny about kings as there are you know the other the other figures in the court and and I mean, this is an epic tragedy and a triumph. Um, 
so it's not I mean there's there's some funny stuff, but I mean definitely like when James Brown does the switcheroo on the dude at the Christmas party and and you know, James Brown can be funny. They bring the, the humorous aspects of him out, but this is just basically serious shit. This is, you know, the one of the greatest American musicians of the twentieth century and, and it's just not that funny. That's you know, for this this series. What what did you think the saddest part was? For me, it was the government, like, deciding that James Brown shouldn't have as much power and success as he had. Yeah, that's pretty shitty. It's it's uh, American history in a microcosm right there. And, and you know, it's, it's like this black guy can bring himself up from nothing and give the country so much joy. You know, it means so much to so many people. And be such a musical pioneer and a musical innovator, and yeah, and his own government wants to wants to destroy him and and cut him down to size, and that that's just messed up and and a real drag. I think the sort of happy tears part for me was the valedictory talk that he and Alan Leeds have the last time they get to hang out. You know, two old men on a park bench, and and. Uh, We'll have something similar in the Morris Day episode, but I, I thought that that was a good way to wrap it up, and not, and on kind of an elegiac tone, and not. When I first watched the season, I felt like it was because of the Rick James two-parter was so downbeat at the end, and then I felt like the James Brown episodes were some, somewhat similar in that. But when I watched them a second and third time, I realized that the the James Brown story does not have that same up and then plummeting down arc that, that the Rick James story did that, that, you know, James Brown had some hard times, but ultimately his story is just too triumphant for his personal travails to really bring, bring down, you know, uh, James Brown. So it's not a massive bummer, but, but I felt like it was elegiac, but now, here's a tough question. Do we like James Brown? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like asking, do you like the weather or like, you know, yeah. God? It's like, you know, he's too big to, to to answer a question like that. It's like, I'm in awe of James Brown. Would I want to, like, have a sandwich with him? I don't know. I think probably not. You know, I think I would, it would just be like, too intimidating yeah i mean i think he's beyond sort of the the approvals of little people like us i mean you know definitely you know he's a a human being like anybody else and and should be called out for his bullshit but uh he just gave so much and and did so much for music and was such an entertainer i mean you're seeing that guy dancing and it's just so clearly an absolute force of nature. And, and I think, you know, to me, the difference between James Brown and somebody like Jerry Lee Lewis is the magnitude of the accusations against Jerry Lee Lewis uh, are bigger. And the musical accomplishment is so weighted on James Brown's side. You know, I mean, Jerry Lee was one of the pioneers of rock and roll and then, uh, but had an incredibly brief career at that. And then, and then goes on to have a pretty solid country career, but he didn't invent funk, 
you know, and, and he wasn't the godfather of soul. And, and, you know, James Brown's accomplishments are just so mammoth in, in not just American musical history, but, you know, global music history and, and such an international figure. So, you know, for sure. Uh, well, especially when you look at like, you know, Michael Jackson, you know, biggest yeah. pop star in the world. And like, there's the, the clear line from James Brown to Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I didn't get into this, but um, you know, Michael Jackson was at James Brown's funeral and and made a point of getting there early and spending some time with James Brown's body and 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 James Brown did the same thing for Elvis when Elvis was lying in state at Graceland and James Brown, you know, contact the family and ask if he could come early and hang out with the king and they and they said by all means you know and and to me there's like this this connection uh among people that are at that level you know and only they can understand each other and and so you know michael jackson obviously had his uh issues and and sins you know just like anybody else or maybe worse than most of us but i i find it touching that that there's that fraternity of you know james brown to michael jackson and and james brown to elvis and those connections um what are our james brown recommended listening well you've got a good list here why don't you uh work through it i think you've got like a you've got the your finger on the pulse here cool and 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 this is pretty much just you know the consensus uh critical theory i'm not breaking any ground here being a contrarian but I think starting with the Star Time box set is a great place to start. It's you know four disc set that that cuts through all all the periods of his of his music and and really good running order, great sound, good listening. Then you got the Live at Apollo uh, album from 1963 that is just absolutely classic and really demands to be listened to whole. And that is the best distillation of the soul years of James Brown and and. You know, if you want to know what was soul music, that is the album to hear. And if you want to know, you know, what's the best of American rhythm and blues, that's that's the album to hear. Um, and then the the funk years, you know, the, the live Sex Machine album with the JBs is incredible. There's also a Love Power Peace album uh, of them live in 1971 that didn't come out at the time. I don't think it came out till the 90s. So that is totally recommended. Um, then there's uh, the Revolution of the Mind, there it is, and the Payback are just three of the albums from that golden period from 67 to 72. And the thing about James Brown is he was putting out singles. He was mostly focused on the singles market. He he never had like a, you know, like a what's going on type thing. Like he wasn't like Sly Stone or Marvin Gaye where he's thinking in terms of albums as art statements. He's basically slapping albums together out of sort of random selections of b-sides and what's his hot single and some live tracks and they can really drive you crazy if you're trying to listen to things in order because they'll have the jb's on half an album and and you know the fred wesley band on the rest of it and um but all of those albums are are really rich and then there's the jungle groove compilation that came out in the 90s and that for me i think in the mid 80s that for me that was the first james brown album i bought and it's uh a great one and and the source of many of the hip-hop samples you know eric b and kim and nwa and so many of the hip-hop generation i think got that jungle groove album 
Um, and then you've got the Polydor's 20 all-time greatest hits. If you need a quick introduction to James Brown, uh, the the 20 all-time is, is pretty solid. Anything else you want to add about the... Yeah, I mean, that was just the, the 20 all-time greatest hits uh, comp is just, you know, 20 songs is not enough to really understand everything that James Brown's about, but you can put this CD on and any time with any group of people and you're having a party. That oh, was yeah. my, my introduction to listening to James Brown, uh, you know, on purpose and, you know, repeatedly was, I had a copy of that CD and I, you know, I played the shit out of it. And of course I had heard James Brown on the radio and stuff growing up, but this was my, the first time that I was like putting James Brown music on, you know, on purpose and listening to it was from that, greatest hits come so i have to stay sort of warm feeling about it yeah it's it's you want to talk about all killer no filler that album absolutely is and it you know there's like uh chuck berry's great 28 and and there's like a 30 song hank williams best of and and prince's the hits and those are the only three compilations maybe the beatles red and blue album i mean that's what we're talking about here is like the the best of the best right there and and you know, James Brown is just such an incredible musical figure. And so what do you feel about the way they structured the season now that we've gotten to the James Brown? Because there's only two episodes left in the season. How do you think it all fits together? I think it's, you know, it feels good watching it again. You know, as we've talked about, it, it, there's some part of me that wants that, you know, Bootsy, funkadelic James Brown timeline to be more, you know, synchronous as far as the way they line up the episodes. But I think based on the other, it makes a good through line through the season, even with the other things sort of breaking it up. And uh, so I think all in all, it was, it was, it was well, well structured. Yeah. I've, I've played with, you know, different attempts, like I talked about other episodes, different ways to lay out the cards that they had. And I think maybe you could have started with Morris Day and then gone into the Rick James twofer, uh, and then and then done Clinton, Bootsy, James Brown, and, and rolled out with Betty Davis. But I, I, I don't the and we'll talk about when we when we talk about the Morris Day episode, but the whole Prince thing is a big factor in the season and it's hard to follow the end of that Morris Day episode. So I, I, I gotta agree. I think they set it up pretty well. Yep. So cool. Well, I think we have covered uh, the biggest two-parter of the season. This was Tales from the Tour Bus, season two, episodes five and six, James Brown. So on behalf of myself and Justin Bankston, thank you for listening. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back next Thursday as Nate and Justin will be back to talk more Tales from the Tour Bus Season 2 featuring Morris Day. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. 
Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.